Welcome to an audio teaching from Windsor Park Baptist Church in Auckland, New Zealand. If you would like to look at the message notes or see some questions for reflection that take their lead from today's teaching, head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and head to the online tab where you'll see services and series and you can download different resources from there. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. Kia ora etefano. It's great to be with you today as we reach what is a significant marker in our Roman series. If you've been tracking our progress, you'll know that today, as we read the final section of chapter 8, that takes us officially halfway through the book of Romans. This is probably a good time for us to have a quick overview of what we've covered so far. The key focus of the first four chapters was showing us that all humanity, the Jewish people, And everyone else, the Gentiles, are all sinful and powerless to save themselves or ourselves, uh, but we can be saved through grace by faith in Jesus. From here, Paul uses chapters 5 to 8 to describe how these two groups are now brought into a new humanity, uh, which is formed by God's saving work. Specifically in in chapter 8 that we've been in for the last three weeks, Paul has focused on the role of the Holy Spirit. First, Heather looked at the war that we all face between the spirit and the flesh. And then Grant celebrated what Paul calls the spirit of adoption that enables us to be children of God. And last week, Caleb dealt with the painful topic of suffering and how the spirit helps us to lament with groans that words cannot express. As we reach the end of chapter 8, Paul's writing reaches a beautiful crescendo in one of his most famous sections, as he drives home his point to his readers. Recently, um, I went to see Hamilton, the production at Spark Arena, and the final song before intermission had a similar effect. The music increased, uh, the volume was getting louder, the cast seemed to get like an energy boost. Everyone came back involved who'd been in the previous songs. Previous songs sort of circled back around, and all my senses were involved as everything came together and sent you into the break, overawed, but ready for more. Here, in our section, armed with just conviction and a pen, Paul achieves something similar. This passage is his poetic high point, the pinnacle of Paul's writing. I'm guessing many of us, as we've read this passage in the past, have had our breath taken away by the beauty of the final verses. I remember being a teenager and Romans coming alive to me for the first time. And I was highlighting with vigor some of these verses as they stirred something in me that I couldn't fully explain. How can this be that good? How is this in the Bible? Why have I not seen this before? Many of you would have experienced something similar with this passage. And sometimes as a preacher, when you come to someone's favorite passage, it's quite hard. Because the reason that it's so well liked is sometimes because it's misinterpreted. And preaching it sometimes feels like you're ruining someone's favorite verse. Like imagine you have a friend and they just love a certain song. But they actually have the lyrics way wrong and they have no idea what it's about. But it it means heaps to them. And then one day you've had enough and you tell them, Hey, did you know that doesn't actually say that? They're actually singing about something quite different. It kind of kills their vibe a bit. Sometimes, preaching a favorite text can be a bit like that. 
sometimes. But today, I'm happy to say that that's not the case. Paul means what he says, and he puts it both beautifully and simply. Nothing can separate us from God's love. We can double down on our delight in this passage and its powerful truth. How good, no caveats. You don't have to get rid of your favorite verse. And as Paul has done throughout the letter, and as Grant has highlighted a number of times, Paul uses a question and answer format to make his point. In the nine verses we have, Paul uses seven questions. Some he answers himself and some are rhetorical, which means we went to know the answer. So let's go through question by question and see what he's getting at. The first one in 831, the section starts with, what then shall we say in response to these things? This is like his transitional statement, kind of like saying, therefore, because of what I've just said, what should we say now? And don't worry, he's going to tell you. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's his next question. And it's another rhetorical one with no time to respond. But the clear implication is, of course, no one. Even though it seems straight, well, even though this verse feels straightforward, I think it's worth us lingering for a moment because it's a two-part statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? The question I want to ask is, do we believe that God is for us? Do you believe God is for you? When we sing the blessing, there's a bridge where it simply repeats, He is for you. He is for you. And it's so powerful as we sing it over ourselves and over others because it's so easy to operate from the basic assumption that God is against us, or at least He just tolerates us. American pastor and author of the modern Christian classic, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer famously said, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when you think of God? Is He in your corner or is He opposing you? Today, be reminded that He is for you and that ultimately nothing can stand against you. And if you're not convinced, let's carry on with Paul's next question, which is meant to demonstrate that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How do we know God is for us? Because of the cross. Because he's paid the highest price. He's gone all in and shown his hand. If he's willing to do that, why would he not continue to provide for us? To take a very human example, say you are someone who is really into classic cars and you saw one that has just captured your heart. And even though it was expensive and it was going to take heaps and heaps of work, you just had to have it. So you've paid an unthinkable sum of money. And then once you got it home, you spent even more money and countless hours restoring it to its glory. Finally, your work is finished. Your classic car is restored. It's beautiful and it's ready to drive. You've put all that money in, but now inexplicably, after all that time and money, you decide you don't want to pay for a rego, so you never drive it. It'll make no sense, right? You've done all of that. Why would you stop then? This is Paul's argument. God has demonstrated his love for us in the most extravagant way. He's paid the highest price to bring us into relationship with himself. 
There's no turning back now. This doesn't mean he's going to give us whatever we want, although we could be tempted to read this verse that way. But it will give us what we need. He'll equip us for what he has planned for us. And how do we know? Because he's already shown us the lengths he's willing to go in Jesus. Anything else in comparison is easy. Paul's next question is the first one that he actually gives an answer for. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Now we're back in a courtroom scene, which has been a feature of Paul in Romans. In the legal system, the one who has power to justify is the one that matters. In, for Paul, in terms of salvation, it is God who justifies. To switch up the metaphor, let's talk about X Factor. I haven't watched X Factor for a while, but when I used to, uh, there was decisions that would come down to a fan vote, and there were some that would go to a judge's decision. If the decision is up to the judge, then it's kind of irrelevant what the fans think that week. What the judge says goes. And the same thing is with justification. It doesn't matter what other people around us think, or for that matter, what we think of other people. It is God who justifies. Paul's next question also uses legal imagery. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Can I be controversial and disagree with Paul's answer to his own question here? He says there's no one who condemns. But what he, what he actually means, and I'm not disagreeing with him, is that there's no one who can successfully condemn us. But you can bet there will be those that try. Firstly, the devil. Often it can be the lies of the devil that whisper condemnation to us, that will, be ne that will never be good enough, or that God could never really love us. And sometimes these lies stick so deep that we start to say them to ourselves and condemn ourselves. And we can project that to others and start condemning other people as well. Maybe not out loud, but in our hearts. So there are some that may try and condemn us. But against all of these potential opponents, Paul doubles down on his legal metaphor. Not only can uh, no one successfully accuse us, but no one can successfully condemn us. Not only do we have God as the judge, but we have Jesus as our defense lawyer. Now that is a slam dunk case. God, judge, Jesus, defense lawyer. What can go wrong? I love this description of Jesus as interceding for us. Paul doesn't just refer to what Jesus has done already for us on the cross, but what he's currently doing right now. He switches from the past tense to the present tense to show us that right now in heaven, Jesus is at the right hand of that father advocating for us, for you and for me. Later in the service, we're going to sing a song that pictures this scene. Some of the words go like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Powerful words. So what does all this mean? No one can stand against us. No one can accuse us or condemn us. God is for us, has sent his son Jesus to take our punishment, and Jesus is now interceding for us. What does all that achieve? 
we now arrive at Paul's beautiful conclusion to his argument. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, I ate these verses up as a young person, but there was one part that I didn't highlight, and it was verse 36. I'd go through the passage a bit like this. God is for us. Yep, come on. No one can stand against us. Yeah, God, love that. Jesus is interceding for us. All praise God, that's good. Highlight that one. We're like sheep to be slaughtered, right? Uh, now, I don't, I, I don't really get that one. Not going to highlight that bit. I'll read on. We are more than conquerors. Ah, that's more like it. Good one, Paul. I like how you finished that one off. That was kind of my process as I read through it. And then what has the sheep being slaughtered got to do with it? What's going on with this picture? And these are not Paul's words uh, uh, uniquely, but he's quoting from Psalm 44. And I think part of the reason for bringing that text in is to remind the readers that suffering has always been part of being God's people. They're not alone in facing suffering. For those of you who were with us last week for Caleb's message, you'll know that he brought out this theme of suffering. It was a powerful message and it's re-emphasized here. To put it in the clearest way that I can, this is what Paul is saying. Our relationship with Jesus is not something that protects us from suffering, but something that can withstand any suffering and hold us through it. Not something that protects us from suffering, but something that can withstand any suffering. The sheep image is also powerful because there's somebody else in Scripture described as a sheep to be slaughtered. Jesus himself who took our punishment on the cross. John, who called him the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection. So at the very time he was considered a sheep to be slaughtered, he was actually simultaneously achieving his greatest victory. If that's you today or in the future, and you feel like a sheep being led to the slaughter, if you're in a place of suffering like a sheep who has no control, whether that's through a sudden event, or if it feels like death by a thousand cuts. If that's you, or when that's you, this passage has three encouragements. As Caleb said last week, suffering is a normal part of life. Okay, I get that that doesn't really sound like an encouragement, but it's an important mindset shift. You are not alone, and Jesus and his people have never been immune from suffering. Number two, you are more than a conqueror. Verse 37 doesn't say, after all these things have passed, we will be conquerors. No, it says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And finally, Paul's main point, what you are going through cannot separate you from the love of Jesus. 
The NLT version puts verse 35 this way. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Does it mean he no longer loves us? No. And I find this so helpful because that's so often what we think. The suffering itself is compounded by the feeling that God has abandoned us or allowed this to happen to us because he doesn't love us. But this is not the case. The amount of things that we suffer, what we suffer, has no relation to the amount Jesus loves us. Suffering does not and cannot separate us from the love of Christ. As we come towards a close today, we're going to respond by taking communion. And our passage today provides a number of entry points to the communion table. You may like to reflect on God's generosity shown in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And perhaps for you, the image that resonates is that of the living Jesus right now pleading our case in heaven with the Father. We're going to listen to the song before the throne of God above, which as we take the elements and these words reflect on the uh, verse 34. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or perhaps as you approach the table, you come heavy with your own suffering. As we take the bread and the juice, let us remember that we never suffer alone. Jesus has gone before us, suffered on our behalf. And as you participate in suffering, May you know him in a deeper way as you remember his sacrifice for us and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me pray and then feel free to take the bread and the juice while we listen to this song. Father, thank you for your great generosity. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your son, Jesus. And I pray for those right now who are, who are wondering about your love. May, they be, may that be reinforced that you've paid the highest price for them and that along with that, you will provide them with what they need. Jesus, we thank you that you intercede. You did not just die for us, Lord, but that you're in heaven pleading our case with the Father. Thank you that you continue to love us, that you know what it's like to be human and suffer and that you can identify with us. And Lord, we pray that as we come before you now, as we take this communion and some come today with heavy burdens, may they identify with you in your suffering. May we know your presence. May we know with conviction and strength that nothing can separate us from your love, that we may not be protected from suffering, but we are inseparably loved by you. May we know communion in each place of our lives. So, Lord, I pray that as we reflect on this song now, would you strike a new resonance in our hearts? Give us greater conviction about your truths and about how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.
strong and perfectly a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. Tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see Him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon. On him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is. my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with Himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my Thank you for joining our audio teaching today. If there are ways that we can continue to support you or help you in your journey, please reach out to us. Head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz, and you'll find various ways to contact us. God bless.